netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our subject for this episode is the feature film Poor Things, which debuted at the Cannes Film Festival earlier this year in France and won the Golden Lion. It was released in the United States this week and will see a UK release in January. Our guest for the episode is Simon Hughes. He's creative director and visual effects supervisor at Union VFX in London. The work that Union did on the film is quite varied as you hear in conversation. And from my perspective, it's a visually stunning film. Absolutely beautiful with a cool stylized look that runs from gorgeous to, well, disturbing, but disturbing in a good way. Um, It's the kind of film I feel Union FX has really built a reputation on. Incredibly beautiful work. So let's go ahead and cross to Mike. He's speaking with Simon Hughes. Thanks so much. And Simon, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Simon, this uh, project was fascinating to me because it seemed like the sort of ultimate world-building VFX exercise. Is that a fair characteristic from your point of view? Um, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And obviously it's... um... The, the, the additional challenge and the fact that it was uh, quite such a surreal sort of challenge as well, surreal environment. So, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, because it seems like you're not only building world building in the traditional sense of VFX, like, okay, set extensions, whatever, but you're you're creating uh, a world with backstory, with context, with incredible art direction that I guess must have been a, a real well again how determined were all those looks before you started or were you part of that exploration um we were definitely part of the exploration but it was there was a very strong um creative lead on the show which in the form of shona Heath and uh, james price the, the two uh, production designers for the show um shona being quite an interesting component here worth worth talking about because um she's not not necessarily from the traditional filmmaking background she's more from um fashion and photography and she had a very strong leaning towards surrealism um if you you look into some of her work you'll see that there's a lot of echoes that spilled over into poor things and then james coming from um the 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 more filmmaking background so both we're taking a very strong creative lead on the show but we also were sort of inputting into that quite early um which we can get a little bit more information on yeah, I mean, as spectacular as the art direction and kind of production design is, you also mm-hmm. had uh, Robbie Ryan as the DOP introducing yeah. some really interesting dimensions from a technical and cinematography point of view. Do you want to elaborate mm-hmm. on some of those challenges as well? Yeah, I mean, I think Robbie threw pretty much every challenge that we can think of our way, really. Um, from, you know, obviously, the, the, we were also shooting on, um, on film for the project, which um, these days is obviously used less and less. So even that on its own posed a few challenges in the fact of also using lots of different um, stocks, which are quite unusual from from Ecta um, through to even using VistaVision in in some of some cases as well. And also having to deal with that in color and in black and white. Um, Can I just clarify that for a second? Because I I knew you shot in in, uh, Ectochrome, which I think was very unusual because they'd stopped making it and it sort of came mm-hmm. back. Yeah. And you shot in black and white. That was black and white stock or was mm-hmm. it graded? Yeah. Yep. But no, I didn't black. know you shot in Vista Vision. But yeah, I mean, there, there was, I think the main scenes for that was the London Bridge scenes. We had some Vista Vision work in there. Um, wasn't a huge component in the show, but obviously each of these little details are, are additional challenges for us. 
And that was then magnified, I guess, in complexity because some of this stuff is shot with incredibly wide angle lenses. I mean, what was the widest lens you went to? Was it was it an eight or uh, four? We went to four. A four. Good lord. Yeah. So obviously, a huge challenge for us in the fact of obviously dealing with, unfortunately for us as well, is that a lot of those were used on um, establishing the environment work. And we had to obviously de lensing plates on those. Once you de lens a four mil or an eight millimeter plate, you end up with a huge resolution. <clears throat> so um, quite, quite a challenge for us to sort of, if we had to kind of reconfigure some of our you know, sort of de lensing process and pipeline to be able to handle that. And we had to, you know, even some of them were creating artifacts towards edge of frame and cropping and all the rest of it. So quite so a history. So people that aren't quite so familiar with what you're saying here, because obviously the kind of lens correction is not normally a big problem. It's just a press a button, right? But basically mm. the computer graphics is going to produce stuff where a straight line is a straight line and a four or eight millimeter lens is going to bend a straight line because it's terribly curved. So mm -hmm. you're having to basically turn what was the curvature of a curved lens into straight lines before you did the set extension, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. And so, and then go yeah. back, of course, at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, a huge challenge for us in terms of dealing with the resolution that we end up outputting at the, the other end of that. So what was the scanning done at on the on the film then to do that? What res did you start with? Uh, they, they, these were these were 4K res, um, but obviously okay. the rest of the thing was was probably uh, kind of the 6K, I believe. And so mm -hmm. then you're you're unmapping that out. And the other mm -hmm. thing that's going to happen on any stock like that, especially color, of course, is that you're going to get chromatic aberration and all sort mm -hmm. of other interesting softening artifacts. All of which, mm -hmm. again, you're going to have to match. Yeah, exactly. And then obviously the different grain responses and um, is, is also a big challenge with handling film. Um, as each of the different stocks have very different properties in terms of the noise that you see in there. And um, you know, even the black and white in particular, strangely, is one of the proves one of the bigger challenges in a lot of ways because it's incredibly noisy. So when, right. uh, when you're incorporating our worlds into their worlds, there's a lot of effort put into matching that. So the grain's going to have a non-linear distribution on an unfolded image. So you're going to have to basically put your CG in, finish the comp, and put it back through the curvature before you applied the noise. Otherwise, it would be a weird noise profile, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that's done at the bottom of the tree, effectively. But. So that's meaning that just to get a sense of stuff, if you're looking at an interim version, that must be kind of oddly kind of not sitting in the shot, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we, we're we're denoising plates before we start the work as well. Oh, okay. So, that, so we're we you know we were extracting to the best that you can. I mean, obviously, you know, there's um, uh, because the film stock's so sort of noisy. There's there's a sort of there's a slight sort of trade off in that. But um, but yeah. So everything's denoised and then de-lensed effectively. So you're trying to work with as clean a sort of foundation as possible before you start incorporating the CG. So how hard was it to match to the ectochrome look? I'm going to get back to the art direction in a second, but the, the <laughs> sets are like very vivid. Now you've mm -hmm. got ectochrome, which is super contrasty, really chroma. I mean, it's a gorgeous looking mm. final grade. Did it look that lush when you were working on it or was it much more neutral? Uh, no, it, it, it is, it's got a very high contrast in it. So, you know, the blacks are incredibly deep and, uh, you know, it's a very vibrant and rich color. Um, we, I think we were lucky in the fact that the actor work was um, not really um, used on a huge amount of the environment stuff. So it's actually used more in the reanimation sequence when, when Bella's first um, uh, brought to life. 
um, which largely the scope of work. And there was more in um, it was actually power and electricity effects and um, and some gore work. Um, so that that was you know slightly less of a challenge in the fact that we're having to re- reinvent eighty percent of the frame. Um, but we did have a few environment shots, which were more dealing with um, the sky work. Uh, but you see, so yeah, so I mean, it is a challenge because of the color palette is so rich, and so you have to spend a little bit of extra effort in there to sort of get a match on that. But, but yeah, yeah. So some of those locations, um, I think it was uh, Alexandria, but like a number of them were like super rich, but incredibly effectively. I'm going to call them tinted. How? Mm-hmm. How much were you given like a lot to be working with to judge your set extensions mm-hmm. and everything else through that? Or do you just sort of like get it to match what you were mm-hmm. given and then you sort of wildly swung in in uh, the grade? Yeah, it is, it's an interesting process on the show. I'd, I'd say about 70% of the show was sort of was, was sticking to the lots that we were supplied um, from, from the DI. And that was relatively, you know, staying within the ballpark once it was going in the grade. But there were a couple of scenes that went through some quite significant changes during grading. We So it's worth talking about that a little bit and the fact that we had, we had quite a long grading um, period on the show. And so we were actually, there was a lot of um, uh, very much more sort of collaborative back and forth as we were sort of sort of nailing down some of the creative on the key scenes being Alexandria and London Bridge. Which they they went through some really quite heavy grading process, which had quite a strong influence on what we were doing. So um, so yeah, so we we started quite an early process and had a lot of back and forth and sort of trying to hone in on what that is, which is difficult when you're reinventing a significant part of the frame. So we need to give them something to sort of work with, and then they feed back to us. We bring that back and adjust uh, lots of grading to sort of figure out what we need to do at our end and then we sort of kick that back so there's a good sort of back and forth between us and the di on those scenes in particular alexandria has got this kind of hazy kind of um, atmospheric stuff and then there's the incredibly inky i guess it's foggy kind of london bridge environment these these atmospherics were they were you working in with stuff that had happened like tell what was that process what was the plate that you got was it super clean and you added on top or did it already have some contextual Mm -hmm. stuff in it yeah alexandria no they they, they were all they were all clean so we were adding atmospheres and the the point of alexandria is they wanted it to feel like at one point we were even going to have it sort of embedding like um uh, sort of flies flying around within sandstorms and it was all trying to create this this feeling of it being very hot and dirty and grubby so that was kind of the remit for that and obviously london needed to feel like it was a foggy london kind of the city environment so yeah the, the those those processes were, were added on at the at the end as well as part of our overall integration so one of the hugely fun parts about this certainly for anyone who's got an interest in vfx is that you use miniatures can you talk about those and what sort of scale you were operating with yeah, I mean, it's worth, I mean, go, going into the whole sort of production value at the start, really, when we were talking with Yorgos, is that, you know, he he was, you know, he was really trying to be cautious about how he used visual effects as a whole and really wanted to lean into sort of um, echoes of like very more to traditional filmmaking, so period filmmaking with the use of things like miniatures and backdrops and um, cyclorama and all of that sort of side of things. So the, all the early conversations with him were very much about how we can find a sweet spot somewhere between, you know, referencing these old sort of um, production values, but obviously knowing fully well that we were going to have to do a significant amount of VFX to see that through the process. 
So, um, yeah, mi miniatures was a big key part of everything that we were up to on the show. Um, so it, we, we had significant models made for the environments. Um, Alexandra being a good case study, like we, we do a big pullout um, when we reveal Bella comes down the stairs and we reveal the whole environment. So we shot um, a small section of set build with her coming down the stairs, and then we had a model shot. Um, but there's a little bit of you know, difficulty in sort of marrying camera moves on those two worlds. And um, so they they can try our best to get it, but they're never going to sit perfectly because it's just too extreme a sort of expectation. So we had to we had scans then taken of all those miniatures, in which we then. Um, brought in as CG assets and um, sort of reconfigured the camera moves. So we we had the, I've gone off a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> but, no, 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 it's super fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, a big part of that challenge is like as much as you have the miniatures, we, we still need to effectively create CG versions up from those miniatures to be able to marry them to the actual plate photography. Um, and obviously the miniature work, as much as it was very popular and, and very much, a, you know, the aesthetic we were leaning into, there's always a point where there's going to be additional requirements on top of it. So, you know, we're lacking some definition and detail. And again, Alexandra being a good point, we needed to have things like palm trees in there. And we've got a slum, which we've got down there, we'd have to put digi doubles in there of um, people walking around the slums. And even the water work is a big key thing when dealing with miniature. There was obviously the the tricky thing of trying to find um the, the sweet spot for getting miniature scale and wave height and how it interacts with the sets and all of those sort of things and there was even aesthetically a conversation with Yorgos early on where we looked at a lot of like films that had used miniature sets to sort of like figure out which are the ones that kind of work for him because there's a there's a world there's a risk with this kind of stuff where it ends up just looking like everything's wrong or you know is it as, actually an aesthetic decision decision that's made there so um we had to do a lot of work in there trying to find you know what is the right sort of frequency of like, you know, ripple effect and wave height and all the rest of it which maintained a miniature scale but also just creatively was ticking all the boxes for, for your goss so let me just unpack that for a second so you've got mm -hmm. like the ship and mm -hmm. now am i right in thinking that was shot with a led volume to give the right lighting on it yeah, yeah. So it's a miniature ship, and then it's an LED volume. Um, uh, but the okay. water is CG, isn't it? Didn't you do a whole lot of water sims? Yeah, yeah. So it's all CG water work in there, and most of the sky work in there. At the end of the day, needed um, further work done to it because we wanted to take the skies a bit further. We're talking about that a little bit more because there's some creative decisions involved in that. But um, but yeah, did I think you make the uh, CG skies to go on the LED volumes in the first place. Yes, we did. And we, we created CG oceans right. for them as well, because we, it's not just the miniature work. We also have shots where the, the live action is shot on the yep. deck of a set. And so we needed to see, you know, uh, real water. So we created... Um, Mark Ruffalo throwing books, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite um, scenes. In terms of skies and stuff, how much were they, again, art directed from nothing or based off somebody mm. sitting on a beach taking sunset shots for a month in Barbados? <laughs> yeah i mean the, the skies is an interesting one for us uh for a bit of context in terms of our our kind of interaction with the with the production design on the show we're really um a big um area that uh shoni was keen to explore was trying to create as part of the overall world building this sort of fluid quality to the skies or trying to find something that had a surreal property to it and she showed us a lot of interesting design and references at the start still imagery Kind of to give us a bit of context of these sort of 
bizarre cloud patterns and color palettes and um and when I was looking at that, it gave me, it really gave me a, a, a sort of, um, it was a reminder of some of the SFX element shooting I did on, on a couple of other shows, like um, where we were doing things like we were shooting um, in slow-mo, we were shooting like Dettol being squirted into water, or we were dropping, you know, inks into water. And uh, and it sort of got me looking around again a little bit at some 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 examples of that. You know, even looking at slow mo guys on YouTube and things like that, where they'd show a lot of these these kind of things. And then, um, but what was so nice about that is that that the the way it moves, it's got a it's got a when you when you squirt liquids like inks and uh, detail into water and all that and shoot at slow frame rate, you get the, both miniature quality, but you get this sort of slightly surreal movement. Um, texturally, it's got some interesting properties to it. So I. And then I started looking around at the art world just to basically see examples of like artists that were using these kind of experiments to see what they were doing. And it's really rich. There's a lot of experimentation out there. So I kind of brought that, some of that, that is like a, a launching point to, um, to Shona and to Yorgos, um, just to see if there was anything in it, because obviously I felt like it lent, you know, we've got cloud-like properties, we've got miniature scale, and we've got something surreal about its overall movement. So it sort of lent itself quite well. Which then they they they, got, they were they were into it as an idea, and then they they started doing some of their own research, and they came across an artist called Chris Park, um, who was basically doing a huge amount of these experiments, but he was also making them available um, that they could they could purchase, you know. So they, they so he you know done you know gone quite far with it as an idea, and so he's got this really big wealth of um, kind of experimental experimental photography. So we we talked about. Um, you know, taking as a foundation sort of um, real uh, high dynamic range sky plates, doing some quite extreme color correction based on the, the kind of references she was showing us, and then bearing in in layers um, a degree of this kind of surreal movement. So you're more like, you know, you have a real cloud in the foreground, but with a very hyper real gray to it. But in the background, you've got this more in the in the stratosphere, you've got this kind of strange eerie movement. And um you know, kind of dripping qualities and strange surreal movement. So we created um, 11 um, sky environments based on the different degrees of these ideas to sort of cover off the different journeys and the different locations that we had to do. And those were supplied as the LED footage. Mostly that LED footage is then, you know, used across production. So when we brought it back into post, when we're in shots where it's just more like performance against the LED, there was a it's a secondary layer on some of those where we, we went a bit further with it. So obviously we, we had the renders originally, but we just wanted to explore it a bit more, give it a little bit more sort of hyperreal quality. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's kind of what, what sort of led that journey. Yeah, and there's such a variety of them as well. I mean, you know, such a color palette between the different skies. It was uh, well, it was like you were doing the same thing over and over. Each one had its own visual language, yeah. effectively. Yeah, definitely. And it was very, you know, like the, the palettes were for each of those locations were very, you know, very, very specific. And that was very creatively led by the production design team, obviously, but on that. So we we had a really good foundation in terms of, you know, Lisbon's got more kind of uh, pink magenta and pale blue kind of quality. Alexandria is very um, uh, sort of mustardy yellows and oranges and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, London, it's very, you know, obviously sort of greys and very murky, <laughs> but with sort of pockets of blue sort of kicking in in places. But um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, it's good fun to work that one out. I think that was a very interesting challenge for us, a very creative one. 
so so in those seats, just picking up that shot, like you've got the miniature, you've got the LED volume around that's giving it the lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about adding the water then, mm-hmm. I was just going to unpack your comment there because you're talking about getting the right frequency and stuff. But at that point, did you want it still to have an echo of looking like a miniature or did you want to sell it yeah. as life, mm-hmm. life size? That's yeah. It's that's that's in a, in a way that's the it's somewhere between the two worlds is the honest answer okay. there. So we we want to stay miniature, but um, there were some specific decisions made depending on the context. Like when we're on the wides, it was very much about staying in the miniature. Um, but we we do we have a, we have a shot where we actually start from them in a, on on set and we pull out to we, and we put them on one of the miniature models as well. And because we're just that little bit closer to the water, we had to we had a little bit more back and forth and creative kind of decision making to happen there, where we find something that sort of sits somewhere between a real world scale and somewhere between a miniature. So yeah, there's some quite bespoke decisions that were made as you as you kind of in, depending on the uh, proximity and whether we had live action in there. And then there's presumably smoke and stuff coming out of the ship's funnels and yeah. just a ton yeah. of other stuff. In green hey, smoke. So <laughs> just just for reference, what's the kind of pipeline? I'm assuming that we've been talking about the earlier stuff. This is all nuke based. I mean, mm. is it and then is there any other particular plugins and stuff you were using there? And also what CG pipe are you using for producing these uh, environments? Yeah, um, no, um nothing, nothing really of note to mention like for additional plugins in Nuke, but obviously we are we are in Nuke. And then um I suppose the only thing worth mentioning there is this sort of like the, the de-lensing component that we talked about. So we had to do some bespoke tools for that just to sort of um get under the hood a little bit. Um but in terms of the CG, um all assets were were built in were for fairly traditional sort of um, well, fairly established sort of pipeline. So all the asset work was built in Maya and the, the ocean work was done in Houdini. Um, I suppose the one thing maybe worth mentioning here is um, in terms of like bespoke requirements is actually supplying the footage for the LED because uh, we actually had to give them 24K footage. I, we, I can send you some resolution details later here, but they're they're um, they're absolutely huge. So we, we had to kind of spend a bit of time figuring out how best to render that to be able to ship it over to the LED company for, and for them to be able to run playback on there so there was a little bit of working out there and some custom tools that we had to uh, get into just to mainly figure out how best to a even be able to render this simulate it break it into sort of quadrants and then um and then how how that can actually be shipped over to them in a timely manner and, and a bit of testing with them to work out how best to get real-time playback and then in addition to that stuff which is the miniature work there's also just big ass sets right because i've seen some behind the scenes footage and there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh you know sensible raising from a certain height but the staging wasn't just two people on a green screen right there was like a lot of physical sets that were built that you were building mm-hmm. up from yeah i mean it's also worth mentioning i mean like the green screen word was was a not very popular word on the shoot so there's very little green screen work there so you know a big part of it was even if um uh, we weren't necessarily doing the visual effects work. There were maybe sort of painted backdrops, and obviously, again, miniatures were used on set as well. So we had uh, there's um, a big reveal of Lisbon. That's that's quite a good one example shot. There's a big wide Abella standing on a balcony. Yep. And um, the immediate foreground in front of her was was miniature, um, which we then obviously and that was shot against a blue screen that, on that occasion. But 
we had to take the, the the miniature work on that and we actually had to sort of reconfigure a lot of that to sort of marry it in and get things moving with the additional set extensions we had to do and and all the rest but but that's quite a good example that one as well as obviously a huge set but also huge miniatures on set plus green screen and you know yeah it's really like every trick in the book here um yeah absolutely in those studio shots it is an interior studio set and sometimes mm. you're turning them like that one you're just describing into a uh, daylight did you have to do a bit of lighting work on the sort of a stage to make it look like it was exterior lit or was the sort of this slightly um well quite artistically valid but quite uh sort of a production design heavy book mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. allow you to get away with lighting that was otherwise maybe not what you do in a sort of 100 percent realistic uh mm -hmm. environment comp yeah, I mean, it's not really something we had to sort of take a lead on particularly. I mean, I'd say it's more leaning towards the aesthetics that Robbie and Yorgos were were sort of after, really. Uh, I mean, there's not a huge amount of note from, from from our point of view there, really. We were very much took their lead and really on that. I guess I'm just really fascinated by it. Like, there's this great shot looking up um, with kind of the overhead uh, cable car kind of things and stuff. And in a shot like that, I've always fascinated... Because if it's a 100% real shot of New York, whatever, you know, you can get some photos, you can just A, B them. Yeah, this is what's different. We need to tweak this, just that. But when you've got a shot like that, there is no, to my opinion, there's no obvious benchmark of realism that you no. can hit. You're trying to yeah. get a notional look, really. Yeah. It must no. be both fun and challenging. Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. I mean, I think, I mean, it's worth sort of mentioning a couple of things on, on that side of things like the, the production design on that. They, they actually, they did a significant amount of um, like sort of um, post-fizz level um, mock-ups of what they were intending to do. And they actually brought this into Unreal Engine as well. So they were able to sort of tumble around and show your boss the context as we were going. And there was a process of them doing some um, uh, some concept work as well at the start. So I think a lot of like it it is it is a wide open brief in so many regards, but but there was a lot of effort put in up front, both from our department, both with a bit of bouncing back between us, and then so that by the time we really get into the nitty gritty of what we're building, because they're so significant, a lot of those decisions have been made kind of up front. <clears throat> It's a, one thing I wanted to just drop in as well for the shoot, just to make sure that we get a nod. Is um, obviously we had uh, we had um, Tim Barter, who is um, he's a, a DFX supervisor and a VFX supervisor at Union. He was covering the shoot as well. I just want to make sure that he gets a mention in there. Of course, mm -hmm. was he overseeing? I presume he must have lidared those big studio sets or something. How did you how did you get that? Everything was lidar, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, yeah, I mean, all the miniature work was lidar, and the sets were as well. I mean, the the ones that we were obviously having to get involved with. But. Like mm -hmm. the the uh, ship uh, cruise boat that they're on, how big a miniature was that? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. just physically, was it like eight foot long, six foot long, forty foot long? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's about Roughly? a sort of eight, eight foot is probably pretty okay. good territory. I mean, um, three quarter scale is usually probably a good guide. I mean, we can dig up some details, and there's probably some stills even to showing you with the model guys next to the ship, so you can get some context. And, I'm just curious with the modern tools that we've got, even on an iPhone these days, which is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Like, how mm -hmm. do you go about scanning that? Is it still you get it like scanned? 
or is it just some photogrammetry these days? I mean, how how's that working for you? I mean, I think because it's probably worth like in terms of the fact that the sheer amount and volume of scanning that we had to do it, and in this occasion, really, was like we we scheduled a, a period of time and we you know hired a company and so they go you know they spend the time doing it. It's no, there's no real need to kind of grab things on the fly as such. You know, it was all part of the production schedule and and all the rest. So the reason I ask that is yeah. I'm really curious about some of the non-environmental work and. So, for example, uh, did you scan the actors and did you scan chickens, ducks, pigs and dogs? We did, we did scan them. We'll call them actors as well. <laughs> but uh, we didn't have to scan any cast, but the animals were that we that we did the work on, but they were all scanned, which is an interesting challenge in its own right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So let's just discuss that because it is just so fun. This uh a very kind of surreal stitching of different heads to different animals that makes mm. for amazing visuals that would seem on paper to be like funny and not you know without its challenges but like one of the huge challenges i was thinking is the diameters of the necks are just so wrong that mm-hmm. like if you make the diameter of a dog that of a goose it's doesn't look like a dog anymore or if you go the goose to the size of the dog then it looks like a i don't know Mm -hmm. dinosaur or something i I mean just were they problems that it just seems like that was a really hard problem but maybe maybe not i don't know how'd you solve it (laughs) well i mean i think it's maybe worth talking about some of the process on the animals anyway because that leads leads us into it really but i mean it's even an interesting thing for us at the the whole start of actually you know taking on the challenges that you you know i think most people the orgus have been speaking to were basically saying you know just just do it all in cg and he was adamant about you know trying to find a solution which incorporated the actual real photography of real animals because just uh, it, it's it's it carries such a risk comes up to such under such huge scrutiny that if you just did it in cg everybody's going to look at it and go it's cg and you know, if we can get some some of the real animals in there, we're going to get some of the nuance of their performance and behavior. So I think, like as part of that process, we basically said we felt like it could be achieved, but it, it obviously this this carries a degree of risk because animals do what they do, and then uh, obviously looking at their body shapes and all the rest of it sort of spills into that. So what we I got, suggest- my, I got my animals wrong, didn't I? It was like a goat and a duck or something, right? I'm like remembering it wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think Sorry. probably one of the strange, probably one of the most complicated things is actually the pig on a chicken body because it's like which is the, the the size of a pig's neck is the size of a chicken. So it's kind of you know yeah, that's a that's a, a big one of note, where, which is so so bizarre. And obviously the weight of it just make it look like it's probably going to fall over, but that's leaning into surrealism. So <laughs> so it does work. It obviously works, yeah. but like it yeah. should. So how so I interrupted you. So how did you like deal with because you can't mm. if you're not doing CG, like who's tracking to who? Yeah, who's stabilizing to who? And do your compositors get bonuses for being able to pull this stunt of stunt work off? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I mean that's it really. It's like with the with the testing that we did at the start, the whole purpose of that was to basically A see which animals would do what and how how well an animal wrangler could even control them. And then, you know, so basically do simple things like walk me to be, let's let's see what it will do. So just to sort of hone us in, because you start with this whole remit of like it was wide open of whatever animal you wanted to do. 
Um, and then we basically just took a lot of that footage and just spent a bit of time just to sort of kind of analyze, you know, which thing, which combinations, A, that we could work with because they felt like the animal wranglers could control them to a degree. And then have a look at body shape. So, you know, as much as like, a, you know, a goose is obviously completely different to a dog, but there's a certain point in like midway down the torso where it actually blends in quite nicely to the, the, the overall diameter of the shoulders of a dog. So it's uh, completely obviously wrong in every way, but that's that's the point. But um, so, yeah, no, a big part of that was to sort of hone in. Like, I think, you know, even like the ambition when you first started talking about, we looked at some artworks out there. Out, there's a lot of actually really fun stuff. On, you just kind of search around where people are taking things that are putting a, you know, really tiny thing like a chick's head onto, you know, a dog's body or something like that. So I think there was a general feeling that that's one stage too far. And then that would lean itself so much more into maybe going to, into a CG world because it's so there's not really enough there that you can kind of blend together. There's no real connection at any point. And then so you, you, these are supposed to be supposed to be kind of scientific experiments that um, Baxter have been kind of conceivably doing, even though it's obviously such a surreal idea that he, you know he's going to obviously look for things that would probably work together, like a jigsaw. So you know he's, he's looking at areas of body shape that would, would kind of merge together. I mean, in terms of the technical challenge on that, it's obviously the two largely two D led to get us to a point where we had the animals combined, and we hit, we we start getting into the performance and showing Yorgos what that might be. And that, that came together relatively quickly, but there's the, the aspects like one animal will be taking the lead. You know, the dog maybe his foundations are sticking to the ground, but the the goose is not quite. So you know, there's, there's hang on a second, more. Simon. I got I got to call you out on this because, like, while yeah. I can almost believe that, then yeah. then we just get to the lighting. Like you, I mean, mm-hmm. if the, if you stabilize something that's moving its head a lot, the lighting on it's going to just change because it's meant to be moving, but it isn't now because you just stabilized it. Which means when yeah. you stick it on something else, its shadows are all going to go mm-hmm. in the opposite direction of what they meant to. I mean, I just, for the yeah. love of anything, I can't work out how you did this. <laughs> well, they, they were shot at this, in the same locations, though. So we, we, we yeah, ran but, the, same, but, the same light. But like so. a, oh, no, no. I, I guess same rough lighting, but surely mm-hmm. if something's moving, right? Like mm-hmm. a shadow is going to change on it. Like you dip your head, right? Then obviously mm-hmm. the shadows change relative to the, but then you have to undip the head to track it onto another body. Mm-hmm. So then if it isn't dipping in the second body and not inherit, it's inheriting movement and not shadow or shadow and not movement. I don't know. It just seems, right. I'm sure you could do it because you've done it, right? It just seems yeah. really like, the more you think about it, the more like miserable it seems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I, I, I would say we were, we were lucky. <laughs> it's probably the okay. honest answer. In terms, in terms of the overall lighting match, it was pretty close. I think the one that's worth probably calling out is um, as the goose and the dog's body, the opening shot of Bella. It's a big wide shot where we pan around. That definitely did have some lighting challenges from like the goose is actually, the goose's head should be casting a shadow on the body, for instance. Um, and obviously the shadowing interaction on the ground because it's a moving shot, there's no there's nowhere to hide with that. So there was some reinventing of shadow work that had to be done on that. But a lot of the other animals, they, they, they were, there was actually sort of, you know, um, and it was enough there that it was close enough and it was working well together. But I think 
um in terms of, in terms of process on that though so obviously like this you sketch it out in 2d you get these animals combined we had the scans of the real animals um so what we then need to do there is a cg component that's involved in this work so it's not all totally relying on 2d and a big part of that is obviously the connection the actual point where the bodies are connected and scars that are were added there because we had to have surgical scars so, so what we did, didn't have scars on the real animals no. yeah <laughs> you track those on i'm sure yeah yeah, well, it is. Um, so basically, I mean, what, what what the process is is that we we we, we combine the the models, uh, the scans, yep. the animal combinations that we have, and spend a bit of time modeling that quite close to the the the, the tenth version of the comp that's been put together. We then obviously had to create a very bespoke rig because we've got a hybrid animal rig which is put together, and so then that a stage of the comp is then uh, roto animated. And then they they basically look to see how well that's sort of sticking. Some of the shots took several versions to basically go backwards and forwards. So they do rotate and they give that to comp. Comp try and sort of adjust things, get it sitting not quite perfect. They kick it back to you know both the rigging and rotate to tighten it up a little bit more. They do another comp version. So there's like several iterations before you get a good stick. Um, this is made again mainly talking about the opening shot of um, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, we should say this wasn't like a Marvel-esque budget, right? I mean, this is obviously a proper no, film, it's, but it's not. You guys are pulling off these things without having an open checkbook, and and you know, mm -hmm. money's no no problem. So, yeah, how big was your team? Uh, let me dig up the numbers because like the whole project got started, I think, in around 2017. But then I don't think you would have they wouldn't have gone to principal photography for several years after that, right? When yeah, and well, the, the team first up, we had approximately about seventy all in by the time 70? we were finished. Right. Yeah, okay. but obviously this this ran for quite um quite a long a long production period with a hiatus in the middle, and we were shooting during pandemic as well, so there was that had an effect on things. So it's it's, it's not seventy consistently throughout the whole sure. time period; it's, it's dropping in and out. But the the I mean, our initial tests that we did for the, like in the pre-production work, which is like beginning of the LED work and the animal testing and that stuff, I've got actually is the 9th of August, twenty twenty one. That's when that that's when that started. And principal photography started on the twentieth of September, twenty twenty one. But obviously, our discussions with them started a good. I'd say about five months prior to that, where we were, you know, we we're having meetings with Jonah, talking about the design, meetings with Yorgos, and then kind of drilling into the detail and figuring out, you know, how best to handle LED, how best to handle the animal work, and having all those conversations a good five months before that. Plus, you had some tricky shots, right? I mean, the whole premise of the film is the new brain thing. So, Emma, well, you got basically to have to combine Emma Stone's brain as it were well mm -hmm. I should say Bella's brain um, yeah and those all had to be worked out before you shot right because that was like like complicated do you want to just establish some of those shots uh well for the actual moment where we yeah did, we because you've, you've got to work all that be out before the shoot right this is not mm. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's the uh, sorry, just that you two's talking about the moment where we actually showed the surgery where the, the brain Yeah, the, the brain and you've got a comp onto the back of Emma's yeah. the actress's head and hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's um that, that wasn't the huge I mean that those slates like prosthetic and model build, um and then we're shooting the plates in the same environment. So we have a you know, have Emma on the on the surgery bed, obviously with her head so in place to take her out, we put the prosthetic in and we took okay. the 
brainer but but obviously the challenge with that is like getting all of that feeling um properly integrated and juicy and gory so we had you know sort of a cg layer which sit, sits on top of the model we added some arteries and details like that pulling out so you get that kind of suction as it pulls out and drips and, of blood and is that the same with william defoe's bubble eating that uh that was all just fairly mm -hmm. easy because you knew what you were going for afterwards or was there anything because these mm. things just seem to me to be again ill-defined. Well, mm -hmm. not ill-defined, just not. You can refer to nature, right, and say, "Yeah, yeah. here's a photo of William Defoe blowing bubbles." Let's match. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the spit bubbles. I mean, there was a lot of chat going in about like, what what could they actually get? You know, you conceivably on set. So there was talk about even like, you know, getting somebody like holding it on a stick and pulling a bubble out, and you know, all those kind of things, which are sort of ideas, which sort of all the best will and intention just didn't, didn't quite work out but i think in terms of the the look on that there was there was quite um uh the, the art department gave some quite a good foundation on that again where, where they they kind of modeled up this this sort of version which is like a it's a bubble but it's got some kind of um flash like texture but obviously we had to take that a little bit further because it's like a fine balance between looking like a spit bubble but they wanted it to feel like it's pulled up some nastiness as it's come out with it as well so we we were looking at things like you know kind of light cheese to get some ideas of texture and we were looking at um even like the sort of um texture you get around like oranges and grapefruit and things like that sort of you get that kind of webbing pattern so there's a bit of design work in there to kind of drill did you have to do any digital makeup touch up on his stuff i presume that was primarily yeah, I mean, going going in at the start of the show, there was an honest conversation about feeling that we probably have to help that out, but we didn't in the end. The, the makeup on it was phenomenal. They, they, yeah, they it was amazing. It. Yeah. Hmm. So I know it's a horrible metric, but how many kind of shots did you guys do? Um, I mean, it's hard to because it's as one hundred and seventy-seven shots okay. all in, and um, they're incredibly uh, rich kind of shots that I'm sure all your artists are very keen to put in their showreel because they are just. Mm -hmm very visually stunning imagery mm -hmm. yeah i'd say it was the show that you know everybody every artist in the facility was asking to work on it because <laughs> I, I think there was a real buzz about it you know and um, we, we were all really excited by it yeah yeah it's a very unusual project and one that obviously would come along every day but it's mm -hmm. uh it demands as i say this kind of uh lovely melding of art and science which uh clearly you guys uh, managed to pull off even though i'm still quite confused as to how you managed to pull it off in the time and the yeah. budget given how complicated it was but yeah, uh yes yeah. pushed put it that way <laughs> well look congratulations uh on the work it mm. is as i say stunning and uh mm. thanks so much thank for you. walking us through uh how you did it no problem thank you thank you for having us well thanks guys for that thanks for taking the time to chat with us simon i really enjoyed the film and for those of you who are in an area where the film is not being screened right now in the theater, which is obviously the best way to see a film, if you happen to be a member of the Visual Effects Society, you probably got an email over the weekend with a link so you can actually watch the film online in the meantime while you're waiting for it to be released in the theater. Well, that's it for this episode of the FX Podcast. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.